This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, NSA. This is Jim Cathcart. Welcome to the June edition of Voices of Experience. Winter is gone, spring is in full bloom, and summer's just around the corner. So now is the optimum time for taking action. To help you use all the resources and insights from Voices of Experience this year, our June theme is Taking Action. As they say, it's time to get off your tail and onto your feet, out of the shade and into the heat, so let's get started. Our first interview is with advanced sales strategist Jim Pancero. Nice to have you aboard. Honored to be here. Well, Jim's been in this business for 32 years. He's a sales trainer. Let's let's talk about this business. What have you learned as you continue to go forward? What's interesting to me is watching, because it has been a 32-year arc for me. We used to have a competitive advantage if you had a one-hour audio cassette tape of an actual speech to send somebody. Mm -hmm. And because I had a tape and the others didn't, I won business because they could check me out. I think there has been more dramatic changes in our speaking business, and I see it in my customers' business in the last five years, than I've experienced since my first sales job in 1969. Mm -hmm. More dramatic changes than I've ever seen. And I think it's critical because of how we focus on that and, and incorporate those issues into what we do, I think, is part of our competitive edge. There's four things I think are critical. The first change I see is decision making has changed. The old model was a relationship model that if you got to the key decision maker, sucked up to then, that gave you a competitive advantage and you got business. I don't see that anymore. Mm -hmm. Today, I see that there's consensus. The younger they are, the more because of the electronic communication means that they're communicating and they're getting consensus. It's not that single decision maker anymore. Much more collaboration. So the key today is not who's the decision maker. The key today is who's your champion. Because if you don't have a champion to get to that consensus, you can't do it on your own. Mm -hmm. The second thing I watch changing is the consequence of the explosion of the Internet. And this is a major topic I'm dealing with my customers. Talking to a car dealership group, they estimate 75% of their customers that come in to buy a car have already looked on the Internet, figured out what model they want, figured out what features they want, and have an assumption of what price they're going to pay. Mm -hmm. Now, that's not bad. The problem is when customers have today done research on the Internet, they assume they have completed their research. That's the biggest problem. Yeah, that's true. So they don't need to talk to you to say, what can you do for us? Their assumption is, I've been to all the sites, I know what everybody can do, And a lot of times they're wrong. So this whole information shift and this misdecision-making is causing such a challenge. What I've I've watched happen over since 82 when I started my business Mm -hmm. is every time there's been an increase in the ability to communicate to our customers, my competitors have increased their aggressiveness of going after those same customers. Hmm. So it's like the tide is rising. Yeah. Information tide rises. Everybody's boat's going up, and some of them are getting bigger motors than I have. So it's this constant challenge of how the marketplace changes. So we go back to the old days. Single audio tape gave you a competitive edge because you could show more information and a lower risk mm-hmm. than you could anybody else. 
So today it's how many YouTube clips do you have and what are you doing with your positioning and all these other pieces because as information rises, so does the competitive challenges and the customer's ability to reach those competitors, causing a major change. Because if you don't take control, the customer's taking control with the wrong basis of information. There's also a third issue, and that is customers' expectations are so much higher today. I actually talk to all my customers, quality is no longer a competitive advantage. I don't have one industry where quality gives you a competitive edge. That's interesting. If you're going to buy a $1,500 camera, it doesn't matter if you're buying Nikon or Canon. Their quality's there. So what happens, though, is look how many salespeople are still trying to sell their quality. Doing research for a customer is such a given today, there's no need to talk to a customer about it. In the customer's perspective, there's four levels of customer service. The first level of customer service is you did something for me, but frankly, no big deal because it was assumed. First level is assumed. Right. Second level is it wasn't assumed, but it was expected. Mm-hmm. Third level is, hey, now you're impressing me. And the fourth level is I'm amazed. Yeah. And in a competitive situation, if the customer can't differentiate you versus the competitors, they will only buy based on price because that's the only value differentiation they have left. Yeah. So how do we sell a higher price of what we're doing and not just have to be at the bottom level of the industry? Mm-hmm. There has to be that differentiation in what's happening. And we have to redefine that process because, frankly, here's the problem. What was amazing today is impressive next month, which is expected next year, which is assumed the next month after that. So it's, everything's it's tr- trickling down. That, that. So that what's happened is the whole focus of expectations of quality has changed so mm-hmm. that now the problem is how do we differentiate ourselves to tell the customer this is something truly unique and different that we can bring to them so that they see more value in it. It is tougher than it's ever been. Yeah. And I think that the, the fourth thing within this is that the whole experience of training has changed in speaking. We're here at the NSA convention, and we just saw it with Bruce Turkle. He ended his program Turkle. by presentation, everybody on your feet playing harmonica. Yeah. And it was interesting watching the energy in the room. He did a great job. He's a pro yes, and just did. polished. You could just feel the energy mm-hmm. in the room pick up. I used to do an all-day seminar and would just tell the people what they needed to know. Yeah, and, and, data and, dump. My God, people, yeah, yeah, data dump, and people actually used to think that was positive. <laughs> and I'm thinking, my God, how stupid that was, that how, why would anybody retain anything until they've chewed on it? I'd like you to give an overview of the different way of thinking about sales, where you focus on process that you and I were sharing offline last night. Well, there's four processes we have to master as a professional speaker, trainer, consultant, humorist, whatever it is. Okay. First process is we've got to have a feeder process. So we attract people. You've got to have an ongoing flow coming in. If you're a best-selling author, that's your feeder process because people are calling you up because they read your book. Yeah. Or because I am a celebrity and you've watched me on TV. There you go. Or because I'm an athlete in my success of what I've done. Right. All, all those things yeah. are part of that feeder system Research. to get people coming Research. to you. Yeah. Because if you don't have an ongoing feeder system coming in, your business is going to you're going to have this major gaps of no income mm-hmm. and and not be able to stay in the business. This is because the goal is to track that first system. The second system is how do we validate? So if you said, okay, you got my attention. What do you got, kid? Kid, if I say I can double your sales, mm-hmm. that gets your attention. But your first question is always going to be, how are you going to do that? That's right. How are you going to do that? How do you prove that? That's the validation stage. The third piece is, what is your change process? What are you going to do for the customer that's actually going to move the needle for them? So if I'm a humorist, it's me standing up and hosting your meeting or being a motivational speaker your third day to add energy to the room. Or if it's a trainer, you're delivering and you're showing the people how to do things different so there's change. Yeah. Because without change, nobody's going to buy us. Right. We are change agents. No matter what your topic is, we're change agents because otherwise they wouldn't mind. Then the fourth level is, and this is the one I see most missed, is what is your holding or capture process? Okay, I've done a job for you. Capture or holding on to the client. And revenues. 
Okay. So how do I, through my research building up to do work with you and my marketing to build up with you, that if you're saying I want you to come in for one speech, mm -hmm. how do I position that? That's a great first step. Mm -hmm. So by the time we have completed the first step, we've already positioned the others. I use my research phase to do the first speech research or the first training program to set up what the whole process ought to be. So then my first training job actually becomes a validation, not a change thing. Because yeah. it validates so that they should do the whole process, yeah. not just the one thing. I'm very proud that in my customer base over 32 years, 90% of the companies that have hired me have used me more than once. Wow. Because of, if you do the yeah. research and set it up, they end the program not by saying, great job. They end the program by saying, okay, so when do we start talking about how we now continue this? Now, that's a big differentiator. And, and I hope our listeners really pick up on this. I want to be like a mole in your backyard. And even <laughs> if you cover up the hole, I'm still going to appear someplace else. So the whole idea of the research is how do I get higher, wider, and deeper to build a champion to be able to move that through? Mm -hmm. That's the driving part of the process. And I think the final thing is it drives me nuts around here listening to people people talk about what they do. Because as an example, they'll say, the title of my new book is Dramatic Leadership. Yeah. And I'm going, who cares? Mm -hmm. The center line of our beam in speaking is profit. Mm -hmm. We don't say my book is titled Dynamic Leadership. We talk about the title is increasing your profitability through dynamic leadership yes. or increasing your competitive edge through dynamic leadership. We keep leading with what we do and then tell the customer, oh, by the way, this is how it impacts you. But that's not very persuasive. We want to flip it and lead with, I can increase your sales because of this is what I do. Very good. And it's like even a humorist, if they can tie this, what they do to profitability, they get more bookings. So how does a humorist do that? The third day of a conference, you say, use me in the morning of the third day of a conference. Energy is lowest. I re-energize the room so they achieve and retain more information on that third day where they normally wouldn't otherwise in doing more to increase your profitability. I'd like to offer one more okay. thing free for, for anybody listening. I've got several clips on YouTube, uh -huh. just under Jim Pansero, that are sales-focused. So if somebody's listening to this and would like kind of some help with sales that's not the strongest area they have, one of the suggestions is look up all the sales trainers you know. You've got YouTube. Mm -hmm. Tony Alessandra does. Yep. I have. Yep. Everybody mm -hmm. has a lot of YouTube clips. That's where you can get a lot of this information and additional help to drill down if this is a topic you want some more help with. Good point. And it's all available for free. Excellent. Thank you, Jim Pansero. Honored. Our next interview is with one of NSA's real treasures, CSP Bill Johnson, one of our founders and the first paid executive of NSA. Welcome to VOE once again. Hey, thank you, Jim. This is like coming home for you. You're the guy who generated the first version of what is today known as VOE. You created Cassette of the Month. That's right. <laughs> I think a Zig Ziglar tape I got him to release to me and uh, I went on from there and got speeches for the most part. That's so amazing. not until VOE Advance with people like you did it become segments. It was usually just a special speech some speaker made. And, and so what we were doing was becoming familiar with each other professionally by listening to one of our presentations. But that was a that was a great service. But let's go back to the early early days of NSA. A lot of our members know the story, but some of the, the members have never even heard how it all began. The roots of NSA 
were all the guys from American Sales Masters who went out on their own and divided the country into territory. And those guys all ran those rallies where they had in the big names, Paul Harvey, Ken McFarland, that's Zig. And that's an embryo, mm-hmm. because if you look at the first six presidents of NSA, with the exception of one, they were all a part of Salesmasters. I'll be darned. And one little-known secret about NSA, Don Hudson is the guy that at those rallies kind of treaded on thin ice and mentioned about national speakers and asked for business cards. And, and then he <laughs> sent me virtually a box full of business cards to follow up. To be, and Don Hudson harvested the first big bunch of members through that vehicle. I love it. Well, you are the guy who initiated, or was at least the implementer, on it, if you didn't initiate it personally, of several things that we've come to know as just you know, part of what NSA is. For example, our first membership directory. You were the guy that came up with that. Yeah, and Jim, the big feature there was so many speakers did not have a one sheet. Mm-hmm. So I had each page with their picture and their bio so they could use them then as one sheets. Yeah, and we didn't, most of us didn't have brochures. We didn't, certainly websites didn't exist. And uh, Well, I'm not sure the printing press. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Well, what you did that was, I think, profound in all of our history was you recorded all the meetings from the very first meeting. That's right. And you own General Cassette Corporation, of course, and and so you were in that business. Well, Jim, Cavett asked me to come there and record the meeting, Mm -hmm. that first meeting that first convention that lasted, uh, let's see, one afternoon and the next day till noon was the length of the first convention. Mm -hmm. 62 people, of which 58 were men. I do know our registration was $49. So from then, I recorded all of every convention until my departure, which was in 83. Yeah. But I love to listen to your stories. And, and I hope that our members get a chance to pull you aside in the hallway or and get you to, to recall all the, the rich, fun history of the people who have made up NSA over all these years, because you are the guy. You've done us a great service. You're the guy who created the Cavett Award and actually got the statue created. What we know today as the Cavett Award wouldn't exist as we know it had it not been for Bill Johnson. Jim, let me interrupt and just say, any of our VOE listeners can just email me, bill at billjohnson.com, and I'll send you the link. Carolina interviewing me about the history of the Cavett statue and an interview with Bill Gove, our first president, and Cavett Robert. How's that? Wow. I love it. What a generous guy you have been and still are. Bill, I appreciate you, and on behalf of NSA, thank you so much for all your years of service to us. Bill Johnson has more NSA stories than just about anyone on the planet. Tap his memories next time you see him. Now let's hear from a new NSA member who has co-authored two international bestsellers, Chris Crowley. 
for the last several years been a follower of the ideas and disciplines suggested in a fun book called Younger Next Year, A Guide to Living Like 50 Until You're 80 and Beyond, is written by Chris Crowley and Henry Lodge. Henry Lodge is a doctor, an MD, and he talks about the science of living younger every year you're alive. And Chris Crowley is a practitioner of Henry's guidance and has made his life an example of it par excellence. So welcome, Chris Crowley. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, you bet. You wrote this book a few years ago, and it kind of catapulted you onto the national stage. What's what's happened with you since that book came out? We've had great fun, I've got to tell you. We thought, Harry and I, Harry Lodge and I, thought we'd have a touch of luck with this, but this thing has been a rocket ship. We sold a million and a quarter copies. It's wow. in 20 languages, but it's a cult book. Every place I go, some guy comes, hey, man, thanks for writing that book. You changed my life. I lost 40 pounds. My blood pressure went from blah, 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 all this mm-hmm. kind of stuff. It's become a kind of a cult book of the good kind. One of the reasons I wrote the book was to have a peg to do a little talking, and that has worked very well. Yep. Well, I, I tell it, you what, I do a ton of it now. You're a fun speaker because I've not <laughs> only read your words in the book and laughed out loud and learned, but I've also seen you in interviews on you know, like USA Today or Oprah or whatever it was. I know you've been on mo- we most did a of bunch the big ones, right. yeah. You're the fun one, you know. Harry's young and smart, I'm old and funny. There you go, <laughs> outstanding. Since you got into the world that we're in, what what has been your experience? For me, it's just like, you know, a whale-eating krill. It's just nourishing to be there in front of all those people. I get a kick out of it. I've always liked it. So yeah. that part's been easy. For yeah. some people, that's a torture. I've been a speaker all my life. I was a fancy trial lawyer at a Wall Street firm, blah, blah, blah. And I sort of thought I was fairly wonderful when I started this. Mm-hmm. Well, I was fairly wonderful would be the most you could do. It took a while. It's interesting. Working at this, I'm a very different speaker. This is like seven years later. Yeah. Uh, the stuff to learn. There's a there's a stick to put together. There's a way to behave. There's a way to listen. I learned a ton of. It's been very interesting and the fun. I sorry to run on like this, but you know this puppy came out when I was 70 years old. The idea of getting this whole new life at the well, tender you look age younger of this seven. Year. Well, that's my job. <laughs> of course I do. Uh, the idea of having this wonderful new career at 70. So many people. We all live forever now, but most people aren't having any fun because of this stuff, which is hard, by the way. It ain't easy. Uh, you know, I do three talks in three cities from coast to coast, yap, yap, yap. But it's fun, man. Keeps yeah. you alive. Thinking about Younger Next Year, I want to get into the content, the kind of guidance you're giving people in both Younger Next Year and Thinner This Year. What's sort of the core philosophy behind all this? Easy way to put it. You can have a massive impact on the quality and a little bit of an impact uh, on your on the length of your life by doing some behavioral changes. There's been a lot of new understanding about how our bodies work at the molecular evolutionary level. It's a yeah. lot of new science. But the bottom line is very simple. It turns out that fundamental behavioral change, serious exercise six days a week till the day you die, uh, not eating quite so much garbage, being in touch with other people, those core things can have an enormous impact on your life. You know the numbers. Yeah. 70% of aging is voluntary, and you don't have to go there till the very end of life. And let that sink in for yeah. a second. 70% of aging is voluntary, meaning it's lifestyle choices and yeah. things that you could have done but didn't do. 
aging you don't have to do. If you take us up on some of the stuff we talk about, serious exercise, which is hard, man. You know, a lot of people don't want to do it, but it's so much more fun than getting old. Getting old in this country is a curse. Most people are not having any fun. Most people spend the last 10 years of their lives seriously sick. You don't want to do that. It's no fun, man. Well, one of the things you said in Younger Next Year that impacted me was you said, after you're 50 years old, you've got a new job. That's exactly right. Good for you. And for the rest of your life, you've got a part-time job of sweating 60 minutes a day, six times a week. It's, 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 it sounds like, a, it sounds like yeah. a nut to a lot of people. It sounds like a nutty prescription for life, but it makes so much sense. The other number, Jim, the other number we ought to talk about, 50% of all the serious illness and accidents, oddly enough, you can skip them completely. Not put them off till the end like aging, but you just skip plain them skip them completely. We're talking heart attacks, strokes, adult onset, diabetes, a bunch of cancers, and the one I always forget, uh, Alzheimer's. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> think about that. There's nothing vaguely like that in all of medicine. Medicine's amazing. That's why we live. Yeah. The only question is, is it going to be any fun? And for most people, the answer is, no, it's not going to be any fun. You can only make it be fun by doing some stuff. You get me excited just, just listening <laughs> to you true, talk man. about it. It's all true, man. It's all true. When you're speaking, you're bringing a spirit to the platform that most people would pay extra to have, you know? I try to see to it that they do pay extra. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> but you've got a playfulness about you, a, a way of looking at things. That like our first president of NSA, Bill Gove, used to say, you got to think funny. Well, clearly, Chris Crowley thinks funny. Funny, funny is a blessing. If you happen to have funny, you're... Is there a way, way to learn that? No. No? No. <laughs> no. Can, I have three children, all wonderful people, all have a sense of humor in the sense they can hear it. But only one of them can do it. Only one is funny. Interesting. It's just a, it's a, I don't know what the hell it is, but uh, <laughs> it's a help, man, especially if you're going to talk about something as dreary as working out yeah. six days a week for the rest of your life. How do you how do you open a typical talk? When you're, I, give them that, I give them the 70 and the 50. I tell them like that. Okay. I say, hey, listen, here's some numbers. But let me caution you first. We all get lied to so darn much. We have screens to screen out baloney. These numbers sound like baloney. They really do, except for one thing. They're absolutely true. In fact, they're conservative. Then I tell them the story. If they're not listening by that time, then something's wrong. Yeah. Well, what, what could I help you discover about our world since you're new to NSA? How to do more effective marketing, how to shape your talks so it yeah. appeals to more people. I find myself in a niche. I talk to a lot of WPOs and YPOs, yeah. which are wonderful clients, but that's like half of my business. Like I wish I could get my nose into the corporate tent in general. If you could start to motivate those guys and tell them that, you know, there's, there's a pile of gold that's just sitting on the table. They're supposed to be in the money business, and they just don't pay attention to health. There are wellness programs, but, you know, they don't amount to a hell of a lot. That makes me crazy. Right. You're at absolutely the right place. Based on my experience with you through your books and in person, you belong here. <laughs> Glad you're, to hear You're it. like the people that founded this organization, Cabot Robert, Bill Gove, some of the early members, who bring a very playful spirit and an absolute dedication to learning their craft. So thank you for spending some time with us. Pleasure to be here, Jim. Thanks for having me. You Appreciate bet. it. In an effort to hear what our clients and prospects want and need from us, we sat down with Chief Revenue Officer of United Airlines, Jim Compton. One is building relationships and patience, because I think a lot of things are based on timing and when things are right, right? And so you can build relationships. The opportunity to speak may not actually be right now, but those relationships, 
you can learn about the company and keep that dialogue going with the company so that at the right time, there's familiarity and that just paves the way a lot smoother. Mm-hmm. Um, but it does get back is understanding who you're working with. I would just add to that yeah. that it's more than just reading about a company. It's also kind of building relationships with some of the, the folks in the company. Yeah. From the speaker's point of view, a really clear understanding of what they think they can do for me. Focus um, on value. Because at the end of the day, it, how are you bringing me value? Right. You know, at the end of the day, how will it generate more revenue? How will that training create more efficiencies? And those are many times difficult to do, but the more it can be articulated, obviously the clearest way is I can save you this or mm-hmm. this will generate this is always a great way to do it because it's right there. But being able to do that and articulate that I think helps a lot. The other thing is also bringing examples of where successes have, have happened. Entertaining the group mm-hmm. is maybe very important part of it but that's not what we're not looking just to entertain people right, right. what do we get out of that right yeah. and so having those examples whether it's from their experiences things they did or using kind of testimonies from another corporation i think mm-hmm. adds a lot of value my counterpart even in a different industry calling me and being enthused mm-hmm. about what a speaker did for that company is just that much more credibility yeah. there's so much similarities i think than what we're talking about for your organization than any business yeah it's it's that concept of it's a buyer's market you got to show value and i think we have to do that all the time we can do that a lot better and that's what we're focused on mm-hmm. and my sense is that's what you're trying to achieve within your organization exactly Thank you to United Airlines and to NSA President Ron Carr for introducing us to Jim Compton for this interview. Here now is another approach to reaching beyond NSA for ideas. Let's hear about mentor roundtables from Tim Richardson. Tim, welcome to NSA's VOE. My pleasure. Thanks Thanks for the invite. We've known each other for quite a while, and I've seen you go through a number of transitions, and, and you seem to always be on top of it because you've been very wise about the way you approach them in many of these decisions. Tell me how you think about career transitions. What's the next step that goes on in your head before you start taking chances and making changes? The first thing that comes to mind, Jim, is comfortable. If I get too comfortable, then I feel like I'm not doing my job because part of my job is to make my audience uncomfortable because I don't believe change can happen unless people are uncomfortable. And so if I'm not doing that myself, it makes it pretty hard for me to teach that. How do you seek out your guides, your mentors? Who do you go to? Because you've had a couple you've told me about. Well, right here within our association, obviously, um, there have been many, many people, and you've played a part, as you know, over the, over the years in different ways. Um, but I'm also increasingly looking outside of NSA. I'm working on a mastermind group now with some C-suite level people who have nothing to do with this industry, because I think if I'm going to be able to do the best job I possibly can, I need to listen to voices outside of the speaking industry, because... Nobody's ever hired me that I can think of who's an NSA man. (laughs) Well, you told me about a transition that involved Joe Calloway. Share that with our listeners. Well, it was 2004 or five days before convention. There's something else I do that's I've done since 1988, and I have my own planning advance. I go off on my own and just think about what do I want to do? Blank paper, markers, used to take the old cassette recorders, and just 
fake blank, blank slate for the day. And usually it's at the beach or the mountains or the lake. And I have a couple places that I've gone back to. And so I was doing this five days before convention. And usually I came back with a plan, you know, PR plan, my marketing plan, my whatever plan. And this time I came back with nothing. Wow. I was frustrated. But I wrote down that day, how do I let go of what I'm currently doing that's providing my income to make room for something better? So I appeared in SA, and Joe Calloway gives his let go speech, <laughs> and I'm blown away because he answers the question I had just posed to myself five days before. So uh, what I did after that, as you know, I went home, I took my promotional materials, I took my videotape. And my son and I went out in the driveway with safety glasses and big hammers, and we smashed the crud out of all my demo videotape. Four-color, beautiful material. And just destroyed it right there in your driveway. Got rid That's of it. pretty gutsy. You're creating a void so that something would fill it, right? Here's but the deal. But you didn't have something to fill it. I did nothing. Here's, here's the deal that I've lived by. When you let go of something, something almost always replaces it that's much better and deeper and more meaningful. But you've got to be willing to trust. You've got to be willing to let go. Jump and the net will appear. And occasionally you just <laughs> Sometimes you jump and you break your leg. And I've done that as well. <laughs> so have I. What filled the void? I became very, very afraid and nervous. So there was a lot of doubt about it. And there was a lot of times where I'm like, I want to go back. This is too hard. I don't like it. Go back to safety. But I met a guy at Winter Workshop in Atlanta named Bruce Turkell, who's become my most trusted confidant within NSA. And Bruce has had, in the last dozen or so years, has had more impact on my speaking business than any other single NSA speaker. And so I happened to be speaking in Miami. I invited him out. I told him I needed some new materials. He said, no, you need a new speech. <laughs> and I had already established that. And so this is kind of all coming together at this around the same time. And so Bruce and I were fortunate enough to be on a couple of programs together and, and uh, got to know each other, and we started playing back and forth. And so he agreed to help me, and he pitched an idea that didn't work for him, didn't work for me. He pitched another idea, and then finally he saw within my name, Tim Richardson, the phrase, I'm rich, if you take out the T and the Ardson. And he called me up one day and he said, Tim, I've got something for you. Because I had cool. just given a speech on how to – I forget. I had millionaire in the title. I said, Tim, you're not a millionaire. And I'm not. And he said, but you're rich. And I said, yeah. He said, the way you live your life, your family, your seeking of adventure, you're rich. And you can show other people how to do that. So he saw in my name the phrase, I'm rich. We took that and rode that train for a few years. And unfortunately, economic downturn of 2008. So I go, listeners, from October of 2008 to March of 2009 with one speaking engagement. Whoa. And so there came another time where things became clear to me that, that change was necessary. And so I was still doing that, but yet the, the speaking industry, in my view, is forever changed as a result of that and other things. And so I rode that for a while and realized that that was, while important, not sellable in a corporate marketplace, which was my market. And so fast forward to January, a couple of years of frustration of not realizing both my goals and realizing what I think is my potential. Mm -hmm. So I called Bruce again this January. I said, Bruce, I got I to gotta shift again, and here's why. And so I went for a run. January day, 
went out for a run and started clearing my head and just started thinking of words. And I didn't want to lose the rich theme because it was very cool. So the word enrichment came to mind. Mm -hmm. So I started playing with that, and then that led to some other things. And then I went to the CSP CPAE Summit in Chicago this year, which was another turning point for me. And someone challenged me to go after healthcare. Somebody, how dare you? You don't know. How dare you tell me what I should do? I'm yeah. a jack of all, and I like being a jack of all. Yeah. And I started really doing some deep thinking, and at that weekend, decided, you know, my first ever paid client was in healthcare. I can track, you know, two or three hundred thousand dollars to one speech in 1988 in the healthcare market. Now, at the same time, as you know, I've spent some time working in hospitality, and so I started thinking about those two things and the depth of understanding I have about that industry, helping a five-diamond property get that. What if you were to take the two and marry them? I don't know that I invented the word, but the word that I'm using to describe that is hospitality. Mm -hmm. And so what I plan to do for the rest of my speaking career, however long that is, and by the way, as you know, I'm also divorcing myself from that title when people ask me what I do. Right. I'm a hospitalist. I show people in hospitals and healthcare organizations how to adopt the principles of a high-end hospitality. So think Ritz-Carlton at your hospital. Yeah. It's easy to do. Mm-hmm. So what I want to do in hospitality is to show them how to adopt what a high-end healthcare organization does in terms of the care and feeding, empowerment, engagement of their people. So that's what I'm planning to do in those industries in health and fitness for the rest of my career. Any closing thought you'd like to share with our listeners? I think a couple of things. One, listen to your market. Oftentimes that will tell you the direction you should take. The second thing that I would offer is just expose yourself to as much as you can within our industry, in the speaking industry, but balance that with a voice outside of the speaking industry so that we are getting what drives us not from our peers, but from the people who could potentially hire us. And then the third thing I would say is make yourself uncomfortable. Find something that pushes you and challenges you both mentally and physically and use that as an anchor to project you and to move you forward in your business. Excellent. Thank you very much, Tim. Thank you, Jim. My great pleasure. Past President Phil Van Hooser has created a business that allows him to stay near home and still have a thriving speaking career. Well, I get to welcome to VOE Phil Van Hooser. Thanks, Jim. I appreciate it. You bet. Describe for our listeners what your business model is today. How do you operate? There's an old quote. I think it's attributed to Merle Haggard, my that great American philosopher, Merle go. Haggard. Look how far we've come to get back where we started from. <laughs> I started as a trainer, training uh, frontline supervisors, managers in the area of leadership development, uh, supervisory skills, managerial skills. Mm-hmm. But like so many in our industry, I thought the glory spot was the keynote spot. And so I worked to get to that keynote and, frankly, had good luck there and enjoyed it, still enjoy it. Mm -hmm. But I found that the very thing I enjoyed as much and in some ways more was being in front of 25, 30, 40 people for three hours as opposed to 2,000, 3,000 for 45 minutes. Today, I would say that probably 70% is training. 
and 30% is keynoting. I do, as you said, do a lot of local work. I do a lot of work with organizations within, a, let's say, a 40, 50, 60-mile radius of my home in rural western Kentucky. And I stress that because we don't have any metropolitan areas around where I am. So there is business in your backyard. Sometimes you've got to find it. Yeah. So when did you join NSA? I joined NSA in 1988, but I came totally like a blank sheet of paper. And I knew what I wanted to do, had no idea in the world how to get there. I'd come from the corporate world, HR primarily, and I'd done training when I was in uh, my role there. And so I assumed that I could do a little of that. I knew there was a need there in the, in the corporate world, but I didn't know if, exactly how to fulfill that need. But I came to NSA, and I started seeing all different kinds of business models, but also different markets. I mean, you know, there were people who focused solely in the finance or in healthcare, or in my case, manufacturing. And I started realizing that this was a much broader game than I had any idea about. I'm basically a product of NSA. I learned so to be I, a professional the from the people that I uh, saw that I modeled my business after that mentored me. Quite frankly, I also learned from folks that I decided I didn't want to do anything like they were doing <laughs> and that I saw at NSA. And, and yep. that's okay, too, because sure that's a lesson that's a valuable one or has been for me. So 25 years later, as I said, I started with a training focus. I sort of evolved into a keynoting situation. Now I'm back to doing both and yep. having a good time. And I'll say this and doing both of them fairly profitably. Mm -hmm. I think, especially today as opposed to, let's say, 25 years ago when I got started, mm -hmm. I think that we have much more sophisticated audiences today than we had 25 years ago. That's not to say they're better or smarter, just more sophisticated. They know more things about our business. In other words, they've seen enough speakers and, and presenters that they think, well, anybody can get up there and give a 45-minute talk. <laughs> now, you and I know and our listeners know that that's not true. But, yeah. but the general public says, well, you know, if they have enough time to prepare and if nobody challenges them, if they don't ask any questions, they just go, give up, get up there and give a presentation that is, you know, well-rehearsed and so on and so forth. And quite frankly, there's some truth to that. Mm -hmm. But when you step in front of a training group for three hours or longer, and now you have to field questions, and now you have to think on your feet, and not everything is on paper, I love the challenge of that. Mm -hmm. I love to be able to think with, ahead of, and sometimes catch up to, in my thought processes, my audience. And it makes me better, sharper in terms of content, so that when I walk out of that training program and back onto that keynote stage, I think I'm better prepared with more practical information that I can provide my larger audience, a keynote audience, yeah. than I would have had I not had the opportunity to do the training for the last week, six weeks, six months, whatever it might be. I think you're right. Well, you went on to become president of NSA, and now then you've had a chance to reflect. What kind of imprints have, has NSA left? How has it influenced your life? As I said earlier, I'm a product of NSA, and I truly am. But I think that it has changed my life in more ways than I could personally even enumerate. Certainly, I'm a better speaker. Mm -hmm. And primarily, I'm a better speaker not because I have more talent 
than I had before I joined NSA, but because I was able to direct that talent or, or fine-tune that talent based on the observations I had of people who were ahead of me in, the, in their careers that I could model or mentor or learn from. I don't think that can be overstated. It's real simple. You go to the fishermen and say, where do you fish? And they say, we fish where the fish are. <laughs> and it only makes sense to me that if I'm going to be a professional speaker or a professional in this speaking industry, whatever, I need to be where the other people who are good at this, who are professionals at this. So number one, I've learned tremendous amount from people uh, like yourself and the generation before me. And quite frankly, I continue to learn from the generation that's coming into NSA right now who look at NSA and look at professional speaking differently than I did when I came in 25 years ago. This next generation, I'm very excited about that. Mm -hmm. Another thing that I've learned is basically the mechanics, the business, the aspect of speaking. This is a business. And I luckily came with a business degree in hand. I came from a corporate environment. And I found people who showed through NSA showed me ways of being more effective, more efficient, more profitable, more practical in my approach, you know, and that's been invaluable to me. But there's just a continual inspiration that comes with being around NSA. I don't know where else you can be and be around so many smart, dedicated, hardworking, inspired individuals. Mm-hmm. And for me, coming to NSA and seeing the, the inspiration and the energy and the enthusiasm about a passion for what they do it continues to inspire me 25 years later. I, I love coming to the conferences, conventions, and I hope if a good Lord and health and everything else provides the opportunity, I'll never miss another one. That My intention is not to, at least. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing some time with us. Jim, thank you for this opportunity to share a few thoughts. One of my great treats in recent years has been living near and being good friends with Dr. Terry Paulson and his wife, Lori. Let's hear what this past president has to share. Dr. Terry Paulson has grown through NSA, chapter leadership all the way up to national president, and then stepped further into serving our global community as ultimately the president of the Global Speakers Federation. And Terry is with us today. Welcome to VOE again. Oh, it's great to be here. Well, let's take our step beyond NSA. What are some of your thoughts on our obligations? You know, what do we need to do and and should we feel compelled to do? What's the opportunity? I think so many times, of course, NSA is being the the founding nugget of of, of energy that that created the profession of speaking, and yes, and, the, it, yeah. and at the heart of that was always a desire to serve the audiences and to serve the wider community of the world. And we've always had international members, but the Global Speaker Federation that it is now termed has taken it beyond that to the realization our economy is global. The companies we serve are international and global in focus. The Internet's and certainly we not limited. we <laughs> can't stop the fact that anything you publish uh, on the Internet is now being accessed and used by people around the world. Mm-hmm. That means for us to have relevance, we must be perceived as an international force. And the GSF, being a federation, has allowed us not to hand over control, but to have a, a strong presence in that international community that speaks to our meeting partners, that speaks to our companies. And whenever we say, well, I'm a speaker, but you're only a speaker in in this country. We say we have international companies we serve. We have an international federation that I'm involved with. And I think in America, one of the biggest challenges of going internationally is bringing a sense of humility. And, and I think what you have to understand, if you come with humility and an awareness of the fact that other 
other associations have something to bring us, but at the same time, we have a window that we can share. And the stronger the profession, the more we are able to meet the needs of an advancing meetings industry and the need for training. I, we, we have so many people with outdated skills, mm-hmm. so many people who don't believe they can still be successful, yeah. and it is our responsibility to spread that message. And my view is it isn't just the size of the Global Speaker Federation that it's important. It's the quality of the people that we bring in in those other countries, yeah. that they're able to serve and shine and bring a credibility uh, across the world and then provide those kind of messages and the skill sets that allow them to be effective. I tell speakers, don't don't worry about being the answer to something. Your job is to provide a fresh window that excites and provides a way for people to see their world with respect for the fact that there's going to be differences. And mm-hmm. I think that's there's a passion, authenticity, and an openness that comes, I think, when you're really speaking as a professional because you're grounded enough in what you're doing that you don't have everybody agree with you. Mm-hmm. It's a question of how do we help people move along? As long as I live, if, if I continue to realize we are blessed to have this profession, and then you find out the real difference is you get people call you six months later and they say, hey, what oh, you six said next. Six years. You're right. Yeah. People come up to me. I give these keeper cards, you know, yeah. key ideas. And I don't put a lot about me, but uh, enough for them to get me. But I had a guy give me after 18 years. One of my keeper cards, it was tattered on <laughs> a plane. And he just said, that's what I use all the time, but I'm running out. I send him a laminated now, a one. A keeper card is a card where people summarize the primary thoughts that they want to take on what from I did. something. Yeah, what yeah. I did is I, I, over a period of time, uh, asked people what were the primary keepers that they picked out. Okay. And then I realized the importance of a couple of things. Number one, not only is content you share, but you better give them an anchor statement that allows them to remember that particular thought. So I established my anchor statement statements for my programs that my customers said were most important. Then I put approximately, I think I have 40 of them on the card, front and back. Mm-hmm. And I'm in little space at the bottom, I have my website, I have how to get a hold of me and all the information. But the card is not about me. The card is about serving them to retain it. Our job is to give them tools that allow them to come back irrespective of who gave them that tool, but but they're really better as a result of that. And if you still have that passion, you're going to do well as a speaker. And, that, and we have people who, it's a second, third career, they come in and they make that happen. And, and we can continue doing that as long as we live. What a gift. You've served as the president of the International Federation of Speaking Organizations, which would be the Global Speakers Federation today. Tell me just a little bit about what you observed in that role that maybe our members would find helpful to know. And let's be real. This last four years internationally has been a very difficult time for Mm -hmm. members everywhere. And as a result of that, we have some of our international groups that are are struggling some in terms of membership and in terms of of making sure that they are continue to be viable. And the goal of the Federation, which I think is wonderfully put together, is not that it becomes something that is bigger than, but serves the association. Its desire is to build a bigger base. We can learn best practices from each other. And the thing that I found as president is when you get a chance to go to other countries and see what they do, you realize sometimes they've taken some of the best of NSA and then they add their own components. And you see these professionals around the world. And you, it is tremendously exciting to realize we have a profession that extends around the world. And like anything in life, difference is what makes – it provides great opportunities to learn. So I, I learned as president. I was humbled by the opportunity to, to interact with people. You and experience. I both attended the first Global Speakers Summit, which was in Singapore. And what a treat that was. 
it is so hard to get a handle of the number of groups and people you can speak to and the kinds of needs that are out there. God bless it, man. As far as I'm concerned, the more we bring together as a profession and, and we honor the fact that there are audiences and speakers to serve them and let's learn from each other. What a gift. I mean, we need to, we need to be embracing that. And, and always in difficult times, there's always a question, well, are we internet? Do we need to be a member of internet? <laughs> the world is international. Yeah. And as far as I'm concerned, yeah. we need to embrace that and, and, uh, and find ways to, to evidence that. In America, probably the biggest danger we've always had is, is known as the ugly American. We come in and we think we have all the ideas. Well, we have a lot of good ideas. We well, have a lot yeah. of great ideas. And I think the reason Oof. for that is that we have grown up thinking, okay, I'm probably never going to leave the borders of the United States, so why do I need to know about that? Whereas all these other countries – They've, had, it, to, they've yeah. had to deal with diverse countries a long since, time. Yeah, since forever. And had to deal with us. <laughs> <laughs> so it's nice, to have, uh, it's nice to have our partners there and to realize their vision of the future and serving our members, all our members, and, and at the same time leaving us better. Wow, it's, it's an exciting vision that matches all we do at NSA and all of the different associations. So it's exciting to have been part of the start of that and to watch your baby grow and, mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and, and really go on. That's, that's always well, let's say that you are having a personal conversation to one of our members who lives on the outskirts of Omaha and does keynote speaking within a 100-mile radius of there, doesn't really see him or herself as an international entity. What would you say to that person if you had a moment, just to give them a little advice uh, as they go forward? I would just say this. Very few people plan to be a speaker, but they find out they have a gift, they've got a message, they've got passion for it, and every time they say it, they, they deliver practical insights that allow people to, to have a new fresh window. And then once you've found that, you should be a member of your professional association and you should realize and be thankful that they understand that it's an international world because I'll tell you, there, a lot of business comes out of Omaha and a lot of international work comes out of that area. And as far as I'm concerned, if we're not prepared to speak from that perspective or have the credibility to do so, get busy in your association and learn and then start contributing back. Yeah. I, I mean, when I started my business, I was already used to poverty, so that was very helpful. <laughs> and I just I had a I had a person who was in who's working for me who I didn't even realize had uh, had PR background. So what she did is every time I spoke, she sent out 17 press releases. Oh she got a list of of 120 groups within a 20 mile radius who needed a speaker. She sent out a one page to all these people. I started speaking. All these people were happening, and then they said, "Well, I'd love to have you come to my company." And I said, "Well, I don't do that. I'm a psychologist. I, you come to me." <laughs> and they laughed. Yeah, they my said, office hours they said are... "We'll pay you." And yeah. I said, "Well." well then I'm flexible. <laughs> <laughs> and I started speaking it within a year. I, I just, I had to give up my practice because I wasn't around and they figured they didn't need me. I mean, yeah. <laughs> wow. So it's a, anybody who wants to make this happen, you will get the kernels of truth here that allow you, if you apply them and you're persistent in doing it, that you can build your business if you're good. Now, a lot of people who come into this hoping they are, but they worked in an environment where people had to go to their programs. Yeah. You, you know, and so I, I realize there are people who will fail. Mm -hmm. And, I, and I, I think failure is an important message sometimes. It, it lets you know I picked the wrong vehicle. But at least if you're going to give it a shot, you go to your professional group, you learn from them, you spend time with people who are successful, and you take their ideas. And what has amazed me, and tell me if this hasn't happened to you, you've given people great feedback, and they've taken it further than you have. Oh, yeah. You know, and you go, oh, shoot, if I'd only listen to myself, that's what well, would have been a heck of a lot more effective. The classic moment for me was over lunch with Cavett Robert, and Cavett said to me, you guys have taken this thing, meaning an essay, 
so much further than I ever thought. Yes. Yeah. He watched yeah. it grow and continued to be the heart and soul of what it was. I mean, that, and he kept reminding us of what that was. And I'll tell you something. It's very clear that the spirit of Cavett is alive and well in Terry Paulson. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Let's take a peek at what's new for the Perform 2014 convention in San Diego. Here's convention chair Dan Thurman. Hi, everybody. It's Dan Thurman, your convention chair for Perform 2014, our annual convention this summer in San Diego, with my final update before the event unfolds. By now, you've heard about our incredible main stage speakers, the bursting with content breakouts, unbelievable entertainers, and much more. We've been planning your experience for two years, and it's going to be awesome. Much of the info is at nsaspeaker.org. Of course, we're saving some surprises for San Diego. Hopefully, you are already registered and have made your hotel reservations. If not, there's still time to make that happen. But seriously, what are you waiting for? Get on it now. Today, I'm not going to sell you on convention. Frankly, this is a no-brainer. If you're serious about your business and committed to creating change in the world as a professional pursuit, whatever your platform, you already know you need to be at this event. So I'm going to assume you're coming and talk about how you should prepare to make the most of this experience. First, answer the question, what does perform mean to you? Do you want to use convention as the catalyst to go beyond communicating a message to become a masterful performer on the platform, making a lasting impact on every audience you encounter? Or do you want to drive the performance of your business, generating greater profit, identifying new ways to grow revenue, and simply thinking bigger about your brand? Or are you looking to expand your audience through marketing strategies and technology? There will be so much to learn and experience, but our goal is not that you leave San Diego with a binder full of really great notes. We want you to gain clarity about the next move that is right for you. So get clear going in about the most important questions you need answered. Next, think about the people you want to connect with while you're in San Diego. You might be looking forward to seeing some longtime friends, which is awesome. Or this may be your first convention and you don't yet have NSA buddies. Either way, think of some people you don't yet know who you'd love to connect with for a conversation. Even if you don't know specific names, describe the types of people you feel would be the most helpful, informative, and fun to get to know or have experiences you can learn from. Again, it comes down to intentionality. The more clear you are going in, the more you will be able to recognize the information, strategies, and people who will bring the most value to you. Finally, make a decision to commit to the experience. And you know what? That's the most important point. Even if your plan is fuzzy or you're not sure exactly what you need to learn right now, don't worry. We've been thinking about that for you for a long time. All you have to do is show up, eager, open, and ready. We'll take care of the rest. We will blow your mind and help you build your business. You'll have a blast and be better because you came. That's my personal promise. As I've said before, there will be two types of people, those who will experience Perform 2014 and those who will wish they had. 
Let's experience it together. I'll be there from start to finish. I hope you will too. I'm Linda Swindling, Academy Chair for NSA. And wow, have we got an incredible lineup for you for the Cavett Institute on June 28th. First, Patrick Henry, CSP, has agreed to be the dean for our wonderful Cavett Institute. And this is going to be run like a workshop with actionable steps for you. Listen to the lineup. First, we have Neen James, CSP and an MBA. Neen is going to talk to us about how do you really capture and commercialize your thought leadership. And then Lois Kramer. Lois speaks on how we're going to get that booking. How do you book more business? How do you really sell forward and make some money? And then one of my favorites, Dave Lieber. He's a newspaper columnist with the Dallas Morning News. He'll be speaking about the power of perfect storytelling to increase your business. And Mark Sanborn, CSP, CPAE, past president of NSA. He is going to come and talk to us about presenting powerfully from the platform. Oh, and there's a special bonus. Both daughters of Cabot, Robert, Lee, and Lynn, to talk about the spirit of Cabot, the spirit of NSA, and what it really means. I am so looking forward to seeing you on June 28th. Yet another past president of NSA, Mark LeBlanc, shares a unique business model that he's created, and you can too. Mark, welcome to VOE. Great to be with you, Jim. One of the things that you and I had discussed talking about today is licensing. So many of us have a good body of work. You know, we've got content, but we want to reach more people with it and without having to necessarily go hire a sales force to make that happen. Tell us what insights you've discovered. Well, it certainly has taken me a number of years to develop my body of work. Mm -hmm. And um, as you recall, Jim, when I was living in La Jolla, California, I started a weekend program called the Achiever Circle. And I ended up doing 113 full uh, weekend programs over approximately a 10-year period. And that became my ultimate laboratory for shaping my work. Because speakers need to recognize and understand that they need to move beyond just having good content and good stories and good ideas and good tips to really beginning to look at how to shape their content. And so over time, we developed our work around three specific modules, money for a small business owner, Mm -hmm. focus for a small business owner, as well as marketing for a small business owner. And then we have created or shaped our material into nine best business practices. And inside those practices, then, are the strategies, tips, tools, tactics, Mm -hmm. everything that supports a person in starting and growing their own business. Once it's shaped properly, then it becomes much easier to then teach and train others to deliver uh, your work, which for many people in NSA, it's so hard to let go of their content, thinking that they're the personality that drives it. And so when you think about the concept of licensing and replication and scalability, you have to look at taking yourself out of the equation. So you're taking the principles, and that's what you use as the shape, as you call it, of your content. That's correct. And they're not unique to me. Mm -hmm. Um, So others can teach them 
And we've done some good things in the world of licensing, in essence, certifying or licensing other small business coaches, mentors, advisors in teaching these nine best business practices. If they're such fundamental and not unique to you, then how do you make them yours enough that I would get the license to use those? Step one is really the the shaping of the content. Step two is having a proprietary set of terms or the language of your work. And so the way you express the principle. That's correct. Yeah. And so I have approximately 30 terms that by themselves are not necessarily that unique, but integrated and in concert with each other become essentially my body of work. What are the steps between or the phases between having your content structured and shaped and getting to the point where you feel ready to to share it with other people and it's actually making money? There are many, many different right answers to how to license your work. And I've created a a, a rather unique way. I'm not looking for a sale. And I'm not looking to exponentially grow the certification side of my business. I'm really looking for one to four solid people a year that I want to be in a relationship with for 10 years or more. So you've got a high trust level in each of your relationships. So going in, you've got much more than a typical licensing situation. That's correct. And part of the commitment and understanding is you must be a product of the practices. There you go. And so we do have requirements in terms of reporting your numbers. We meet on a weekly basis. So every week there's new stories of what I could have done differently or what worked and what didn't work. And it's an incredible opportunity to share. On on the licensing side of things, what are some of the pitfalls or things to avoid? I think putting together the profile of your right fit is job one. We've spent some time really looking at that profile. And unfortunately, some people chose to step out uh, Mm -hmm. of our coaching program. And now we know better the profile of our right fit. There's no upfront licensing fee uh, to be a part of my team. They're not buying a franchise. And uh, they typically pay on their collections. Mm -hmm. What would you recommend to those that want to do a more assertive outreach? I think there's a difference between certifying somebody to teach your work and licensing your work. And I think that the decision becomes, do you want to license pieces of your work that is more likely more scalable? Yeah. There are a lot of five to ten to $15,000 bills out there for people who want to add another arrow to their quiver. I've chosen to go the opposite way and say, I want to be in a relationship with 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 people who are full-time in the space of small business. Well, you're actually building a a business family. That's a wonderful way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. Because one of the criteria is, well, one, do I like you? Uh Second, are you fun to be around? And third, would I want you in my home and would I want to be in your home? Yeah. And those are uh, part of the criteria of whether somebody is a right to perfect fit. That's, I think you've given us some insights that'll, that'll make a difference in how we think about our own content and about our own business, whether we're building an enterprise where we could potentially license pieces of it, or whether we're building a business family, as you are, where we are looking for people of, of similar spirit, our soulmates, so to speak, that, that would follow the same path in their own ways. So thank you for sharing. Thank you, Jim. You bet. 
Hello, NSA and GSF members. This is Greg Williams, your CLO, Chief Listening Officer for VOE Sane. Welcome to this edition of Glad You Asked. In this segment, we're honored to have with us past NSA President, CSP, CPAE, and Kevin Award E, along with Master of Influence, who's also the chairperson of the NSA Foundation Board of Trustees, Al Walker. Al is here to answer a few questions about the NSA Foundation. Welcome, Al. Thank you. Good to be here. Tell our listeners, what is the purpose of the NSA Foundation? NSA Foundation is a 501c3, and it was founded back in the early 80s to be the charitable arm of NSA. Foundation serves members and the public through about five or six different categories, uh, such as PSBF, which is helping members out who have some catastrophic illness or event happen to them, uh, scholarships for uh, people who are juniors and seniors in colleges, and now we've added this year to also members of NSA who have children that are headed toward communications that possibly might do some speaking, or if they know of someone, they can recommend them too. So it's not just juniors and seniors in colleges that have communications programs, because mm-hmm. we realized some of them weren't going into speaking. They were just going into broadcasting or, you know, or some other form of communication. So, uh, But we also have, along with that, the grants to NSA members for attendance at conventions and at meetings where they can't Uh, possibly afford to come but we know it would be beneficial to them and they apply for that or we have some dues we have several people during the year who just because of those catastrophic events can't afford to pay dues so we have 10 of those each year we can give out we also provide grants to charitable organizations in the city in which we have our convention and this year we've already picked the one for san diego and it's going to be a group that works with veterans but it's a way for us to partner with somebody in the city in which we have our have our convention also we have the art berg fund which is a strong fund and started in honor of art berg who was big on communications and big on using technology and after his death, several people got together and contributed funds to the foundation to start the Artberg Fund, which gives grants to people every year to provide technology to a school or some. And it has to be, it only goes to an organization in which a member of NSA participates. So only NSA members can make recommendations for who would get that grant. Mm-hmm. They have to be involved with that organization in order to do that. It seems like the NSA Foundation is much more extensive in its efforts than a lot of NSAs are aware of. Now, if a speaker is in need of some type of assistance from the foundation, how does he or she go about obtaining such? It can come from several different ways. The person themselves can apply for it, and they have to have been a member of NSA for at least three years. If they are a former member who's not a member now, they can still come back for help from NSA if they were a member for five or more years. That that helps a lot of the older members who quit speaking or who drop out for whatever reasons, health, and they could come back and, you know, because this whole thing was started to begin with because one member had some incredible need. Uh, Frank Betcher, who wrote a book called How I Raised Myself from Failure to Success in Selling, which is a classic, and based his whole success in life on enthusiasm. And uh, he was up in his 90s, and his wife called several NSA members and said, we're out of money. we got plenty of insurance, but we got, we're out of money. And so they all sent checks. And when Frank died, she wrote checks back to them, and they all endorsed them over to NSA to start this fund because they thought somebody else might have that. That need so it came about as a need that Frank had and or that his wife had both of them had I guess back in the 70s 
how should NSAers really make their contributions in the form of time and effort to the foundation? Just send us all their money. (laughs) (laughs) The the other way to do that would be to be sure and participate in the functions that we have for the foundation is one thing. Every year we have a big evening event and and this year's evening event is going to be really special we're going to have food stations and people like nito and mariana have sent in a recipe and they're going to the chef at the hotel has agreed to get the recipes and make their particular specialty and they'll be at a, at a stand or booth a kiosk kind of uh giving that out in samples and, and desi williams who has his barbecue is going to be bringing some of those like sliders and uh we'll have margaret and myself are going to be doing one with one of our we can't decide on either uh corn pie or collards we're going to do a side dish so we, from the south and where we're from and so it'll be an interesting evening food wise but also we're going to have a great program uh, for everybody after after that's over well i'm gonna tell you what al i'm ready to sign up right now after <laughs> that Good. al thank you for delivering such great insight to all of the nsa listeners and those that are listening as gsf members we all appreciate your time and your effort thank you very much thank you very much Until next time, this is your Chief Listening Officer, Greg Williams, and I'm glad you asked. Thank you, Greg and Al. For the President's Report, Ron Carr was recently in Belgium, where he interviewed German speaker Niels Brabant on the value of NSA conventions and recordings to speakers all around the world. Today, I decided to do something different for my VOE segment. I decided to interview a gentleman who's come to every one of NSA's meetings this year because I wanted to see what the value was that he was receiving and why he feels other people should be attending those meetings also. So would you please help me welcome from Germany, Niels Brabant. Niels, welcome. Thank you. Niels, tell me, why did you buy the entire meetings package of NSA meetings? Yeah. When I joined the German Speakers Association for the first time, I immediately booked the NSA meeting, which was in Indianapolis. And this had so much value to me that I knew each and every meeting of the NSA calendar will be put into my calendar. And there is no chance of anything else than those meetings are going to happen for me during that time. Why all the meetings? Yeah. I mean, I've, I've been doing this for 15 years now, but it, it just means I did it the way I thought this may be good or acceptable or whatever. I didn't even know that there is a speaker industry. So when I've been to the first meeting and seen the level of professionals in the United States, I've seen that I am at the very, very beginning, even after 15 years. So I knew I have to learn. How would you define your beginning? I was delivering speeches like, I went there, I spoke to the crowd and I went home. And the fee was quite good. By the way, since I went to the NSA meeting, my fees quadrupled. So the whole structure they gave to me, those number one experts who, who, who shared their expertise for free, had an immense effect on my business. But the interesting thing is that you consider yourself to be a beginner. Yeah. Which, is, which to me is one of the reasons for your success, because you don't think you know it all. Well, let's get down to brass tacks. First meeting you came to was a Platform Profits Lab in January in Phoenix. Exactly. Did you get a return on your investment? Um, yes. Actually, when I, ki- when I came back, we had a first approach on passive income, and we made fifteen dollars to $20,000. After being in Tampa, after three months, we have a profit after taxes of 45,000 euros. 
full income stream which we had never before in 15 years in our business. And what is the change you made from that profit lab? The most important thing is that you have to get away from the point that you think speaking is the only income stream you have. So when you think you go there, you speak and that's it, that this is only the beginning. You have to see what does the client need, what products may you already place in before, what products can you do during the time you're on stage and what products are, what products are you able to sell after your speech. If you only have those four streams of income with recordings, with uh, transcriptions, etc, etc, you normally at least can double your fee immediately. And you also told me that you've got the next year's, not just San Diego, but you got Washington DC and Phoenix lined up, yeah. that you mark those dates in your calendar and you do not allow yourself to sell those dates. Exactly. Why? Um, I lose money. I mean, when when I would take a speech, even with a new system, I don't get the knowledge from the NSA meeting, which means I earn on shorthand, but I lose in the, in, in, in the midterm and long run. So, so every day I miss during the NSA meetings is at least, I think per day, 10,000 bucks lost cash. You know what the people keep asking me, Neil, is what is the reason you're president and you're going through all this sacrifice because you travel a lot? Let me just share one thing. One of the big joys I get out of this presidency this year is meeting people like you. And you have just taught us today what the value is for ongoing education. If we want our audiences to keep paying for our services. What gives us the right to go and teach them if we ourselves don't practice it and learn ourselves so we stand the cutting edge of our profession? Exactly. Niels, it's been a pleasure. And by the way, we're actually in Belgium attending the Holland Speakers Association as we record this VOE segment. So to my listeners in the U.S., thank you so much. Look forward to seeing you in San Diego, and we'll see you next month. Thank you. Thank you, Ron. And thanks to our VOE team, Alina Ettringer at High Point University, the amazing John Schwartz, Greg Williams, Barbara Paris, and Rocky Heyer. I'd like to thank Mike Rayburn for our soundtrack music this month. It's off of his album Fidgety Digits, and the title is Woodpecker Rag. In closing... One feature we've shared in VOE each month of this year has been Music of the Month. This has a strategic purpose. It's not simply a showcase for speakers' hobbies. Instead, it's a way to show you how scores of NSA members are earning a good portion of their living by finding creative ways to incorporate original music into their speaking. Some are earning substantial royalties off of their works, too. Personally, I've not only used bits of my own music in my speeches, but I also perform in nightclubs and at special events worldwide each month. My wife and others often join me to expand the performances. Here's one of my original songs written long ago after a long summer night motorcycle ride. I call it Riding Free. schedules to meet There's not a thing in this world to tie me down The buses pass me by their destinations on their face No names on me man, I'm not going just one place I go where I want to be You any town 
but my mood to guide me I follow the road I like best One week I may go to Mexico The next I'm headed northwest Two wheels below me, an open road ahead Don't need much money cause I'm carrying my bed I'll work one day for my bread Then travel on Don't put me down, man, I'm doing what I like Yes, I'm happy when I'm out here on my bike I'm seeing the world my own way Come on along Nothing but my mood to guide me I follow the road I like best One week I may go to Ohio The next I'm headed southwest Ninety miles to Little Rock, my roots and memories I'll pause but new and winding roads are calling me My goal's the ride, not the place I'm riding free Goals the ride, not the place. I'm riding free. My goals are ride, not the place. I'm riding free. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.